Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from a cold and overcast day in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our forest management investigative series. Our focus today will be on the forests located in northern British Columbia. Joining us for this episode is Michelle Connolly, the Director of Conservation North. Michelle has been a dedicated volunteer in the environmental movement for the last 25 years. This passion led her to obtain a Master's of Science in Forest Disturbance Ecology from the University of Northern BC. Michelle spends much of her personal time exploring and admiring the natural forests in her area. Ms. Connolly has worked as a biologist for the federal government, a large environmental NGO, as a coordinator for climate change research program, and briefly as a forest technician for the BC government. She's also been an advocate for First Nations. Conservation North is a 100% volunteer-run community group based out of Prince George, BC, and is a science-based and donation-supported conservation group. Michelle, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. So I guess let's start off with perhaps if you can share with the listeners what attracted you originally uh, to your forestry and, and conservation goals. Well, I, I grew up uh, right next to um, natural forest in central Alberta. So I grew up in an area that was mostly kind of aspen and um, grassland in central Alberta. And I spent a lot of time outside. So I was a pretty feral kid. And then we moved to uh, Surrey when I was growing up and um, and I spent a lot of time in the natural areas that I could find <laughs> that were mostly in the city. And, and so then, and how did you get, uh, where, where did your passion for conservation come from? I think it came from just spending a lot of time in nature. Uh, in forest was always where I felt safe and secure and always less so in, in urban areas. So I think it actually just comes from having spent a lot of time in natural areas and developing an emotional connection to them. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a funny point because my, my mother often has told me, it's like, you know, don't you get scared when you're in the middle of the wilderness? And, and I said, no, you know, actually it's a lot safer than uh, wandering around downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So, I, <laughs> so I share that feeling. I share that feeling. Um, and so the purposes of our conversation today, uh, which areas of BC are we, are we dealing with geographically? Yeah, so Prince George is in the central interior of BC and the forest ecosystems that I would like to focus on, I guess, are the boreal rainforest, which are dominated by spruce and subalpine fir, and then interior cedar hemlock forests. So our area of focus are, is really kind of north of Wells Gray Provincial Park, all the way up to the Peace River Break. Um, uh, and that, that's kind of a contiguous um, old growth rainforest in the interior. Okay, and then that would be uh, east to the Rockies. That's right, um, that's right. The, the kind of the Rocky Mountain Trench north to the, the Peace River Break. Okay, excellent. So how, how would you define old growth forests then? And are all of these forests in BC uh, the large majestic stands that many people associate when they hear that phrase? Some people say it's a matter of the age of the dominant trees, but I defer to the definitions supplied by Rachel Holt, Karen Price, and Dave Doust in their last stand report. And of course you interviewed Rachel and Karen a few weeks ago. Um, well, they say old growth forests have been left to develop in their own way. They have continuity. They tend to have a lot of dead trees, downed wood. They're structurally complex. They're a mix of light and dark. 
And death is a really important element in old growth. There isn't a single old forest in the province that doesn't owe some of its structure, complexity, and diversity to the natural workings of insects, fire, disease, wind. So a healthy forest has death and decay in it. Um, and our area of focus, as I mentioned, as a group are the kind of lower entropy, stable forests that are dominated by cedars and hemlocks and spruces and subalpine firs here. Um, sometimes the trees are smaller, sometimes they're larger. Lar tree size doesn't really have a lot to do with, with how old the forest is. Um, and to address the issue you brought up where everybody, you know, has a different mental picture of what old growth is. We sometimes talk about primary forests, which are forests that have never been industrially logged. And, and most of the time in our ecosystems of focus, one area can be both old growth and primary forest. And that's because we don't get a lot of natural disturbances um, that hit the whole landscape here. Okay. And I guess certainly from your uh, first forest disturbance ecology background, uh, that uh, diversity and structure in the forest becomes uh, of significant interest then to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's a really important element that I can talk about a bit later, definitely. Yeah, fantastic. So how does your definition of old growth then differ from that of the industrial government complex's definition? Well, I had a recent um, story that I can share. It's a, an example. So the, the BC government has issued a license to um, a, a company to log in an area of primary forest about 45 minutes east of PG. And this area is interior cedar hemlock forest, so it's rainforest. We explored the area, we took, four, we took photos, we interviewed a trapper whose trap line is on the chopping block. Um, and this is, by the way, um, the main reason behind logging this area is actually for pellets for export. Um, in these forests, there are towering western hemlocks, western red cedars, some Douglas firs. There's a thick mossy carpet on the forest floor. There's large fallen rotting logs, some standing trees. And you can see what these forests look like from a recent video we did called Pellets for Power. And the forester who's working for the pellet company told me that the area in question is, is not old growth. And having spent hours in these stands, I disagree. Um, but what the forest was looking at was really the information in something called the Vegetation Resources Inventory, which has information about stand age, among other things. Um, the VRI is publicly available and it has all sorts of information in it, but it was derived from air photos and some ground truthing, but you can't ground truth everywhere. So the information in it is somewhat limited um, and it's probably meant mostly for guidance. So um, you interviewed Dr. Daniel Polly a few months ago and I'm totally gonna misappropriate Polly's shifting baselines thing, but but I often worry about shifting baselines in old growth forests where you get a mental image of an industrially managed forest and then that's your reference point. And you never really get a sense of what was there before, what was lost. Um, and we've had long-term declines in old forests here. So I think the idea of shifting baselines in forests is kind of a, you know, possibly a real thing. Um, as another example of the way in which, you know, someone like me might view an old growth forest as opposed to a company. Um, one of the biggest forest licensees here is allowed to submit something called 
a recruitment strategy for an area that they've over harvested. So um, this licensee in question has, has pretty much laid waste to an area called the Parsnip drainage north of Prince George. Um, and these forests are, are old growth. So it's part of the boreal rainforest. So they're old growth spruce dominated, they're wet spruce forests. And they're in an old growth deficit in the area. And the company knows this and the government knows this. And they've logged, the company's logged beyond what the old forest retention uh, targets are in something called a biodiversity order, which is what lays out what they're supposed to retain. And, um, and the BC government is allowing them to use these, quote, recruitment strategies to achieve old growth uh, retention and it's allowing them to basically circumvent the intent of the biodiversity order. So it, recruitment strategies are a loophole that allow the harvesting of high age class forests or oral growth forests and not the retention of them. So what they've done, this licensee, is that they've drawn lines around areas of forest, some of which are, you know, 40 years old in an ecosystem where the stands become hundreds of years old. We've, we've aged trees in log decks, um, old growth spruce trees that are older than 400 years old. Um, so there's no realistic way of recruiting these types of forests. And so I guess to get back to your question, you know, is, is this partially because they don't know what old growth really is? Um, I, I doubt that. <laughs> Yeah, and that's interesting with this uh, loophole that they're utilizing. I mean, it sounds like a paper exercise, which really has no um, representation in the woods. Um, and I, I saw a lot of this type of stuff happening on the Queen Charlottes, where they were chasing large high value um, spruce, or sorry, not spruce, uh, cedar and yellow cedar in very marginal ecosystems, um, which are typically very wet. And the moment that those are logged with, uh, without the, 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 the forest cover bringing up the, or drawing the water table and utilizing that, the water table becomes on surface and you develop a series of swamps, which now your, your recruitment into a forest probably is gonna take three times as long if it ever recovers. Um, and I, I would imagine that's gonna be a very similar uh, condition to those wet spruce uh, sites as well. Yes, that's really interesting. So it created this really long-term problem. So the idea that these ecosystems just renew themselves isn't quite true there, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess, you know, why are old growth forests important then? You know, what, um, why, should, why should the average uh, person in, in British Columbia care whether we're, you know, is it, is it more important to have jobs and a pellet mill functioning and shareholders seeing some profit? Uh, or having a bunch of old trees out in the ground? What's, uh, why are they important to us? Right, so, so global wildlife populations have plummeted since 1970, they've dropped 60%. And in, in Canada, mammal populations, for example, have dropped by over 40%. BC has thousands of species at risk, and the reason for this is, is habitat loss. And here in our part of BC, this habitat loss is, is due to the loss of old growth forests. So most of our large vertebrate wildlife need old growth forests to meet at least one of their life history requirements. So, you know, large raptors like goshawks need a place to nest. Grizzly bears need trees in which to hibernate. Lynx need denning sites. Um, I, real, I, I discovered recently that neotropical migrant songbirds um, 
reproduce in certain seasons and they use old growth here for that. Of course, mountain caribou need lichen um, and the list goes on and on. Salamanders need wet log microsites. Martin and Fisher need a prey base. Um, bull trout need, need a supply of cold, silt-free water. So, so you could just go down the list of all the, all the wildlife, um, many of which are actual food sources for local people here, um, like moose and deer. Um, they also use old growth for part of their um, life history. So old growth is, the other thing is that old growth is, it has been identified as being um, the best chance for those wildlife to persist and adapt to, to future climate scenarios because old growth has all sorts of nooks and crannies in it. So those are, those are niches that are otherwise rare or absent in industrialized landscapes and in industrial forestry landscapes. Um, old forests represent basically a continuum of a lot of ecological processes over, low, over long time periods and they've accumulated the habitat complexity. Um, lichens, for example, don't, don't reach their maximum in interior rainforests until um, large contiguous tracts of forests reach an age of several centuries. That's actually Karen Price's research from a few years ago. Um, and then there's a mental health um, benefit that I'd like to talk about too, which is that they just feel differently. Um, you know, I, I feel really different when I walk into a managed forest or a plantation versus a primary forest, even one that's been disturbed. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like myself if I, if I don't spend time in natural forests. Um, so primary and old growth forests feel like they have their own story. And um, I think that element of the importance of nature in general and forests in particular kind of gets ignored. I think people actually need them for their, for their health. And um, yeah, we, we can talk about the, the pellets and the, the economics thing after too. I think, um, I, I think that the, those things should be sourced from managed forests or plantations. I don't think we need to go into primary forests or old growth forests for those items. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned there's that, you know, call it a more, a more spiritual sense to those uh, primary forests or the undisturbed forests, and, and certainly some of the work that's been done uh, with the neural networks of the mycorrhizae. Um, you know, if you're a sensitive individual, you may actually be sensing that connectivity in the woods um, versus a managed or disturbed forest has not yet had the time to develop that complexity of interactions uh, in, in the ground. And so that's, that's a very interesting point. Wow, I've never, I have never heard of that, that some people can actually have a sense for those connections, but it makes sense. Yeah, and, and, you know, the, the work of uh, Dr. Susan Simard, I believe it is, um, you know, it's, it's her, her work is, you know, something right out of Avatar. I mean, it's, it's quite something, uh, but she has been able to scientifically document what's going on. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, she was my forest ecology professor when I was doing my undergraduate at, at UBC Forestry, um, and ah. I followed I followed her work for many years. <laughs> okay, so we're 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 preaching to the choir here. Um, and then, so are there different types of old growth forests then uh, in in northern BC, and and is there sort of a, a spectrum that we can look at in terms of of how those stands uh, function or, or 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 look or feel to people? Yes, so uh, there, there is lots of diversity of different types of old growth in northern BC. You know, a big chunk of northern BC is actually boreal forest, um, and I'm not as familiar with those forests, but those also get old and they're also very important. Um, I'm most familiar with the, an area we call the boreal rainforest, which is spruce and subalpine fir dominated, and then the inland temperate rainforest. So 
Um, the boreal rainforest stretches generally from kind of north uh, of Highway 16 towards the Peace River break, so northern Rockies. Um, and these are, they're snow forests, so they have the equivalent precipitation of a rainforest, but it comes as snow. And then there's the, the inland temperate rainforest, which has a bit more public profile um, because it, it has these kind of towering western red cedars and it's also a, a global anomaly um, so it's very beautiful it's really the only place in the world where you have a temperate rainforest that far from the ocean um, and um, yeah so it's gotten a little bit more attention than than the boreal rainforest but we consider both of them to be very important and I suppose the the temperate rainforest probably is also much higher productivity, which should also have a greater abundance and diversity of, of life uh, outside of the, the trees. Well, you get a range of different productivity types within all types of forests. So not not everything in the inland temperate rainforest is high productivity. Um, as you pointed out in, in another interview, it it, there are certain there are pockets within these ecosystems that are higher productivity and of course as you go upslope uh, that changes um, so that that pattern um, that pattern is also the case in the in the rainforest here and, and then which of these forest types are at uh, greatest risk uh, presently yeah so what I learned from the recent analysis in the last stand for biodiversity report by by Rachel Holt, Karen Price and Dave Doust is that our wet spruce forests, so the, the boreal rainforest are what most urgently need protection from logging now and and the reason for this is is a century of exploitation for saw logs and and pulp and there really isn't any sign of this slowing down I I don't have proof of this but some people here think that logging in these forests has actually sped up because of announcements in the past year about caribou and the old growth panel review which happened late last year and the fact that you know there were no moratoria when these things were happening so it's the talk and log problem um, the whole price report shows that 90 uh, 94% of the landscape units within the very wet spruce forests have less than 1% of natural levels of high productivity old growth remaining. So again, that's a subset of the old growth, um, but that's the stuff that's been the most aggressively targeted for the past um, you know, century. So, so basically the boreal rainforest north of town here is a big red zone. And, um, and as I mentioned, you know, I've, we've aged trees in, in log decks recently that are, that are over 400 years old. So the, a lot of the, the last forests that they're logging here are very old. And those trees that are 400 years old, just so the listeners get a bit of a gauge in terms of their size, I mean, the, the basal diameter in those might be what, 18 to 24 inches or something of that nature? Um, some of them are less, are, are, well, they're often less than a meter in diameter. Like if you were just to take a meter stick to have like a common um, metric there, they're, they're less than that. So they're often not really huge trees. Like if you were from, you know, parts of the Vancouver Island or the lower mainland, it probably wouldn't strike you as an enormous tree. Uh, but, but this is an ecosystem where things get very old and then these trees are growing in productive sites. So you look at the rings and they're very tight. You know, we, we go really close with a loop and we, we count those rings uh, pretty methodically to make sure that we get the age, you know, we, we get as, as 
you know, we're doing this in the field. So outside of a lab condition, um, you know, we're, we're limited, but, um, but, but we, they are old and they're not enormous. <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the, the counterpoint to that is that's some very high quality lumber uh, as well, though. Absolutely. They're, it's beautiful. Um, and of course, this is, this is part of the reason of the, you know, the success of the industry here is because they've, they've been able to harvest these places. Yeah, that, that absolutely has to be acknowledged. You know, we, this part of BC has produced the most beautiful lumber for a long time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and, I, and I suppose that problem with the, the, the denuding of that wet spruce type has also been exacerbated by the fact that the, the drier pine forests that have been uh, either hit by fire or pine beetles or both uh, exacerbates that condition of, of more and more uh, even age class um, across the landscape. Um, yeah, I guess it does. That's right. Uh, so, so in those drier pine forests where they get, you know, they get a, it's a totally different type of disturbance naturally. And then in these spruce forests, they, they, they're mostly kind of insect disturbances. And so they don't get a lot of like fires that wipe out a whole landscape, for example. So it's, it's just a completely different type of forest than, than the, than those pine forests that get hit by mountain pine beetle. So we, we have sort of a, a, two, a two tiered uh, uh, approach here that's causing the decline of the forest. You know, one, one is the excessive industrial logging and then the one is the, just the natural processes of uh, fire or, or insect damage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and um, you know, my, my personal opinion is that we don't really respect those disturbances enough and we, we don't really, we don't emulate them <laughs> very well. Well, then of course, it, and now we're, there, there's, there's two sources now of that disturbance, uh, which, you know, it results in this sort of uh, um, an, an imbalance in terms of what's out there on the landscape. Uh, we're simply taking too much of, uh, of, these, of these stands to allow for any other resource values, um, which, which would include, you know, the wildlife and, uh, uh, and sort of humanity's enjoyment of those spaces. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, is it true then that uh, forest policy in BC uh, does not maintain the natural range of ecosystem diversity and, and then of course it poses a high risk to biodiversity and, and long-term carbon storage? Yes, so we've moved the system far away from what's natural and so we're facing the consequences of that. Um, you, you bring up natural range of variation, so that means that you know the best benchmark for what biodiversity needs is to look at what proportion of the landscape was naturally old before the advent of industrial logging sometimes before the you know european settlement even so for example in a landscape where fires happen you ask questions like how often did did fire happen here what size were the fires how severe were they so we ought to manage ecosystems so that their current um, you know, the current practices emulate the natural range of variability or variation. And um, we've, we've definitely logged beyond that, way beyond that in the Northern wet belts. And um, it, we need to acknowledge that managing forests in relation to their, to their natural patterns is probably the most effective approach to, to maximize um, other values like wildlife. And so what, what have we seen then as a result of this, um, this, I guess the displacement of, of the natural condition between what was older and what was younger? Mm -hmm. what, are, what are some of the major sort of ramifications of that? 
Yeah, so, so one indicator of whether you're doing right by nature is, is to look at what, what wildlife population numbers are doing. Um, and a wildlife biologist recently told me that everything that we're bothering to measure is in decline, which is, which is really scary. And so that would be our larger ungulates, probably migratory birds. Yeah. So bears. So I, uh, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not a wildlife biologist. This is just what I've learned from speaking with them. But it sounds like, um, you know, this is coming from government biologists and biologists that work for, um, you know, consulting biologists. And so, yeah, my understanding is that a lot of uh, wildlife populations are kind of in deep trouble in this part of BC. Okay. And then, of course, we're also going to have some hydrological changes uh, and per per perhaps even some local weather changes in terms of uh, the difference in humidity and, and that type of thing. Yeah, you know, that's not something I know a whole lot about. I know that Rachel Holt has actually written about that in the southern part of the inland rainforest. She did a report a few years ago, ago talking about um, how microclimates change when you remove um, these really old forests that have been there for thousands of years. Um, yes. Because you, you do have a fair uh, variability in terms of temperature um, in your region. I mean, on the, let's say if we, if we extend out to the west uh, from Prince Rupert down to, let's say, mid-coast Bellacoola, the, the variability of the temperature on the coast is much less than what you see uh, in your area. I mean, you, you can be down to minus 30 in the summer and plus 35 in, in, in sorry, the other way around, minus, minus 30 in the winter and plus 35 in the summertime. And that creates a, a, a much different sort of set of challenges for those ecosystems. Yeah, and my understanding is it also creates challenges for wildlife. So moose are a species that is, is something that seems to be really important for a lot of hunters in this area. And my understanding is that they, they actually need old forests because they, um, they need the canopy cover to kind of thermoregulate. And they get really stressed. Uh, they get stressed at different temperature levels in the summer and winter, apparently. And so maintaining um, old forest cover is one way to help them to thermoregulate throughout the year. Um, and, and if they're not able to, I imagine that um, they'll be stressed and uh, we just wouldn't have as many of them as my guess. Yeah, I mean, and certainly if you're, you're a moose in the midst of a winter blizzard, you're gonna, you're gonna be seeking out that dense, uh, dense cover or, or, or taller trees that can intercept some of that snow and wind versus uh, standing in the midst of a clear cut, uh, freezing, your, freezing your tail off. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> So is, is there a way that we can uh, assess the ecological risk in terms of the habitat or biodiversity loss or ecosystem resilience of these various forest stands? Um, yeah, I mean, um, like I said, like understanding what, it, I guess it depends what you're looking at. So understanding what the wildlife populations are, are doing. But yeah, keeping within the natural range of variability is one thing to do. As I said, we've completely blown past that. So you're looking at the, you know, the historical level of old forests on the landscape and realizing that we no longer have that and then responding to that, that would be the best reaction to, to ecological risk here. We kind of already know, like the, you know, the whole price report, they have it, they have, they laid it out really clearly. They've got maps showing what the hotspots are in BC and they actually have a really useful table 
in there that um, lists out what the what the BEC zone codes are. So as you know, um, BC is is divided into different um, kind of ecological units based on the um, the forest type and a manager uh, who works for the government, for example, would be able to look at that table in their report and go, okay, it looks like um, the zone we're working in is, you know, beyond the threshold of ecological risk, so we need to do something. Um, so that information's already there. Like the whole um, price report really did cover, you know, at a really high level, what the areas of high ecological risk across BC are. So, so that's one resource to start with. And then, of course, um, the next move is to, is to, you know, place immediate moratoria on some of those hot zones across BC. Right, right. And just, just sort of rough numbers uh, in these wetter zones, there's probably 80 plus percent naturally would be in this older successional stage of forest. And in, in the, I would imagine it's pretty similar in your temperate rainforest area. Yes, so um, that's right. So in our interior cedar hemlock forests, I think the, the range that I've heard is something like 70 to 90% is that our landscapes historically, you know, if you were, uh, you know, an osprey flying above a land, one of these landscapes 200 years ago, uh, around 70 to 90% of those landscapes would have been old. And of course, now that's completely flipped the other way. And, and, and in, in many of those, particularly the higher productivity uh, subvariants, I mean, we're down to 1% or less, which is a, a very dramatic uh, shift from what has been the natural state. Yeah, indeed. So, and that's because those areas have been targeted because they have the highest value trees, they're the most easily accessible. And so, yes, the, the, those are the places that are probably most at risk right now are the places that are the richest and easiest to access the highest productivity. Mm -hmm. And so what are we, what are we looking at in terms of, uh, you know, potential climate change influences on these northern forests? Yeah, climate change will mean more natural disturbances, more probably fires, insects. Um, but disturbances themselves aren't, aren't the problem, it's our reaction to them that is the problem. Okay, uh, expand on that please. Right, so, um, so climate change, it, what, what we've seen happen is that climate change is being used by the BC government and the, the forest industry to justify more industrial logging. Um, unfortunately, addressing climate change is, is a mandate that is quite easily gamed. And I think that this is owing to the fact that it's kind of abstract. So, so those in power are using climate change to carry on with, with business as usual, really, by saying that we need to ramp up forestry and produce more more products with these forests. Um, there's there's a myth that logging old growth is some kind of carbon carbon management solution. Um, but in fact, if we're going to meet our climate targets, keeping primary forests intact is actually an important first step. And that's that's well established in the literature, but it's largely uh, an ignored action because of the power of the forestry lobby, which represents industry. So we know that trees absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they store it in their body parts and older forests store more carbon than younger forests in general. And that's in the vegetation and the soils and it continues to store 
carbon as they age uh, and absorb it even when they get really old. And there's been you know, enough research on this. Both living and dead trees store carbon. So for example, in our, in our wet cedar hemlock old growth forests, upwards of 400 tons per hectare of carbon is held in soils and living and dead trees. There was a, a study done about eight years ago on that here. And these forests have built their stores over centuries. And we know that upwards of 40% of that stable carbon is the stable stored carbon is lost in the act of logging it. I've read that it, even in forests like the boreal, which are, you know, which goes across Northern Canada and which is fire dominated, the payback period for that lost carbon is often over a hundred years, which, which really surprised me actually when I read that. Um, roads that access these cut blocks are, are essentially deforested. So that's land that often doesn't really grow back trees like it once had. Um, and I don't have the numbers on this, but the area that's been deforested due to roads in BC is enormous. Wetter ecosystems, high elevation forests, they store carbon for longer because they get less, less frequent natural disturbances that are large scale. And as others have mentioned, carbon bound up in a forest per unit time is the metric that counts, not whether a given stand um, is a source or sink at a given time. You often read stuff like even on the federal government website about about forests being sources or sinks at any given time. Um, and those, that messaging is just confusing and it's difficult to understand, but, but the carbon stored up in a forest per unit time is what matters. Um, even if stands of old trees are chewed up by insects like the mountain pine beetle, when they're, when they're left to naturally regenerate, they, they, they return from a temporary source of carbon back to a sink that's sequestering carbon in a, within a few years, that's happened in research in our northern forests. And in contrast, a clear cut can actually continue to emit carbon dioxide for up to 10 years. And they often don't recuperate their original carbon stores over the subsequent rotation, which might be 80 years. So, so harvesting old forests releases uh, carbon immediately and, and continues to for years. Um, industrial logging is one of the biggest emitters in BC, not just because of the biogenic emissions from disturbing soils, for example, but also because of the, the road building, which I mentioned, which deforests a linear strip. And of course, moving things, the transport, the milling, the shipping, the international markets. Um, and, and so considering, you know, the BC government's legislated greenhouse gas targets, a strategy that needs to be considered is leaving primary forests alone because it's a recognized climate mitigation strategy. But instead of doing that, they're pursuing more logging of primary forests for products such as uh, you know, wood products that live a long time or things like pellets, which we're seeing locally as well. So it's generally agreed that protecting forests is actually a more effective means of carbon stewardship than, than logging them. And um, even when you incorporate the, the, the wood products or pellets into, into the scenarios for the future.
Yeah, so just wanted to touch on one thing there, and you, you'd mentioned uh, the soils, and, and of course, as a, a forest stand is is logged, and there's that rapid uh, decomposition of, of the organic matter on the site that obviously becomes another emission of CO2. But I think uh, globally, even amongst our agriculture, we're really missing uh, the soil as a component of mit either, either mitigating climate change or sequestering carbon and certainly all of our conventional agricultural practices of uh, pouring biocides and uh, synthetic fertilizers uh, serves to exacerbate that problem and if we can get into managing the soil uh, the soil can absorb a tremendous amount of carbon uh, which we, of course, we see in a natural forest stand, um, and that you know again comes back into the mycorrhizae networks that are decomposing and that uh, generating that humus on the on the forest floor, which is a, a long-term carbon storage. Yeah, absolutely. We've been hearing a little bit about natural climate solutions, and I think that what you're talking about falls into that category. But but you almost never never hear you know about the value of soil and the the importance of soil um, in this whole bigger picture. Well, it's one of those inconvenient things, right? It's easy to uh, it's easy for the governments to tax uh, gasoline with a carbon tax and then build a, a pipeline with the dirtiest oil in the world to uh, the dirtiest country in the world, and uh, you know, the, and the same thing with the BC government. You know, they have a the clean clean BC plan, yet we're looking to uh, extract uh, um, natural gas and ship it overseas, build a massive dam. Uh, and you know, none of this makes any sense um, com in comparative to what we could be doing with uh, either renewables uh, or looking at managing our land base in a more, uh, a more efficient and, and uh, holistic means. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So, and, I, and I'll throw something else out too for your consideration. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, the upcoming grand solar minimum uh, you know, Dr. Valentina Zarkova is somewhat leading that, that push. Uh, she's a mathematician and solar uh, physicist. And so the, the calculations are pretty clear that we're coming into a period uh, between 2030 and 2050 of uh, greatly reduced solar energy, uh, which could be similar to the, the Maunder minimum, uh, which of course for us, particularly these northern forests, if we're now faced with perhaps 50 years of extremely small growing seasons uh, and, and productivity, this is going to further project uh, uh, forward in time the recovery of these ecosystems, mm -hmm. uh, which could be far more deleterious than, um, than what we're presently seeing, uh, given our, our calculations in terms of how soon these forests may regenerate or, or when they become closed canopy and, and when they may be experiencing um, structural conditions similar to an old growth forest. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it's all the more reason to be more conservative about about how we manage them. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so I guess the the we've kind of covered it, but I'll just we'll just throw it out there so we have it on record. The the natural disturbance pattern compared to our harvesting methodology is is there's a radical difference between that. Um, and you know, is there an argument that can be made that you know, perhaps through some very large-scale natural disturbances, we would wind up in a situation similar to what we're what we are in presently, uh, or is that just that's a too far a stretch? Yeah, no, I I don't think you can argue that. I think you know, fire and insect disturbances aren't biologically, chemically, or structurally equivalent to industrial logging at all. 
um, natural disturbances alter alter the physical structure of forests. So fire, wind, insects, decay, pathogens, parasitic plants, root fungi, all, all forests in BC experience these. They happen at different scales. Some are localized, some happen at the landscape scale. They damage and kill trees or reduce their growth, but they don't really do the things that you see with industrial scale logging. Um, Tree death, it, as I mentioned before, is a really important and healthy event to happen in a forest. Um, some, some will argue that, that the, the value of a tree for wildlife begins when it dies. Um, as I mentioned, all the different nooks and crannies. The effects of natural disturbance are rarely uniform, like, like industrial logging is. So sometimes big trees will survive fire and droughts because they're in wet microclimates of drier places. Um, and they, they really play an integral part in how forests develop over, over time. And it's been said by researchers that the, you know, the most effective way to promote biodiversity and ecosystem resilience is to, is to maintain or restore natural disturbance regimes. But what we've seen happen is that natural disturbances are actually a Trojan horse for logging. So in this part of BC, uh, we get spruce beetles and um, bark beetles are considered in quotes a forest health issue according to some people. So if, if you if you want to log an area, um, just call it unhealthy. Uh, if it has insects, fire decay, it's an unhealthy forest and and that's an excuse to to log it. Yeah, we've certainly seen that with the mountain pine beetle and the the endless chasing um, of salvage operations, which you know if, if anyone Anyone with a, a level of education that's looking at what's happening there sees that that harvesting pattern is pushing the bugs further into the trees at a much greater level than if they had been sanitized with a, a, a fire, you know, have a 10 hectare managed burn to, to sanitize that area. And, and instead, we're, we're just pushing, which is obviously if you're a you're in the logging business, that's a great policy, right? You just continue to push the, uh, the beetles further into the trees and fill out another salvage farm. It sounds like you've had personal experience with this, Michael. <laughs> I've, I've driven through the, uh, the Chilcotin many times and, uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, uh, area around Palmer Lake, which is off the uh, Alexander Bell Road there, um, you know, you, you drive for about three hours, uh, uh, what was used to be green trees and now it's all red trees and, and clear cuts and I mean, it's, uh, the, the, the devastation of that landscape is, is extreme and of course in uh, 17 and 18, much of it burnt, so, um, <clears throat> which may have been a blessing because now at least the the pine beetle numbers have been de uh, denuded quite significantly so maybe the uh, the forest will have an opportunity to sort of continue to to flourish here yeah fire and insects leave the forest structure and industrial logging doesn't so and they also they also you know keep some of the carbon on the landscape too so there isn't really any comparison in in my opinion between a natural disturbance like a fire and insect or you know, a, a human industrial scale disturbance. For sure. So what does all this mean then for BC's northern old growth forests? I mean, where are we at? What needs to happen? In our northern forests, as I mentioned, industry is using insect disturbances as an excuse to log and it's a, it's a very pernicious problem. So 
We know that native insects are part of the web of life. Some are considered pests or injurious insects because they, you know, they harm trees that are economically valuable, like you mentioned, the mountain pine beetle, um, which is a bark. Uh, um, they eat the inner bark of trees. Insects that eat the leaves off of trees are called defoliators, and they also there's a, a defoliator here called the western hemlock looper, that, you know, both of them, both of these groups of insects exist in, in, in the background at low population levels. They occur in pockets on the landscape. They're, those are sometimes called endemic populations and they go through cycles based on the climate. So the, the populations of these insects responds to moisture and temperature. So when there's a climate trigger, their populations rise and they spread. Um, and these are called you know, outbreaks or epidemic population levels. And the thing is, there's, there's no scientific consensus that you can log your way out of any insect outbreak. In fact, what experts explain is, is that logging may make a small dent in you know, spruce beetle numbers, for example, where small patches of, of trees are stressed. You can remove some trees and decrease the numbers that way, but there really isn't any way to stop a big outbreak with, with, uh, with anything really, or uh, an epidemic insect population. So by the time you know, a spruce beetle outbreak happens, it's too late to control and you can't stop it. And the reason this matters here is because among people who work in forestry, it's common knowledge that that forest licensees are logging vast expanses of the boreal rainforest, so spruce forests that are not infected with, infested with the, with the spruce beetle. It's apparently standard practice for companies to send people out to find spots where there are a few trees with spruce beetles in them, then they acquire the permission to log it, and then they log an area far greater than, than what the beetle is actually in. And <clears throat> logging, logging more, well, logging in the first place in these areas um, has, been, has been called out as, as a problem in the first place, but, but logging more than is affected takes survivor trees out of the population. A researcher called Diana Six has talked about this. So these, these trees might have a genetic resistance to beetles. And of course, you know, if you're a licensee that's taking everything out, you're also taking out those trees. When in our local wet spruce forests, when, when a, beetle out, a spruce beetle outbreak happens, it will take out some of the biggest and oldest trees, but you get something called compensatory growth where the trees that have kind of been waiting just below the canopy grow really quickly in response to getting light when the, when the overstory trees die. And, and there's research showing that forests that are left alone after insect mortality recover quickly just in terms of living biomass. I was seeing, I was looking at, um, there was a, a, something called a forest summit recently that took place at UBC, I think just pretty recently. And, you know, one of the comments in, the, they brought together people from um, different organizations and interests and they talk about renewal of disturbed areas. And it just made me think how how common it is for, for um, I guess, people that just don't spend a lot of time in forests to think that disease or decay or death is something that can just be eradicated and should be eradicated in a landscape. Yeah, and I guess there's a, there's a disconnect between, um, let's say, managing a, a farm or an agricultural operation 
um, versus managing a wild forest. And in that agricultural operation, you probably do want to sanitize those, uh, you know, few corn plants that are showing disease, you get them out of there uh, so they don't infect the rest, but there's a much different time span and uh, diversity that's uh, at stake in a, in, a, in a wild forest stand. Yes, absolutely. So the, the natural processes in, an, in a natural forest need, need to be respected. Yeah, for sure. There, there are probably around 2010, there was a bit of a, a Western hemlock looper outbreak on the Queen Charlottes. And you could see patches of, of you know, reddish, um, the remnants in the hemlock stands, which is very unusual up there because it's generally a carpet of green. And uh, when you go into those stands, most of the hemlock recovered after a couple of years. And those that didn't, as you suggested, you know, the, the uh, cedar trees that were in the understory that were suddenly receiving, you know, two or three times the light that they had, uh, you know, were growing a meter plus a year and, and were sort of beginning to, those, the, the co-dominant uh, trees in that stand were developing. And of course, over time, the hemlock has a much shorter lifespan than what the cedar does. And so it's part of that successional pattern of, of release. And in those old growth stands, I mean, that sort of single, single tree release, uh, whether it's through wind, flow, wind throw or, or disease, is crucial to develop that structural diversity uh, that, they're, that, that, that uh, old growth stand is attributed with. Yes, and I, I'd really love to see those areas in, on the Queen Charlotte's that you're describing because there, there was a looper outbreak in our interior cedar hemlock uh, forest here in the early 90s. And I saw something very similar with you know, the range of, of responses from stands that were quite severely hit where all the overstory trees died to ones that were hit in a minor way and you can't even tell it went through. So the only thing's telling me that there was a looper outbreak is really the maps that when it happened, they, they accounted for it. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, all the landscape scale diversity really. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you get out that way, the, uh, the ferry boat from um, Skidigat to Allerford Bay, which takes you from uh, Graham to Moresby Island, uh, just before you get to the uh, Allerford Bay ferry terminal there, up to the left, there's a, there's a bit of a ridge and you'll see some old growth at the top. Um, and that whole bowl uh, is where, you know, it's a very, very easy site to access because you can, you know, you drive three minutes down, uh, down or you know towards uh, Sandspit from the the ferry terminal there, and you just walk up into the into the stand, and it's all there, and it's uh, yeah, it's quite quite interesting to see for sure. Nice. So I, I've heard from several people in the forest conservation community that emphatically state that uh, the private control of public lands is a source of our sustainability sustainability issues. Uh, however. Personally, I don't believe that the government can or is able to manage our forest resource and certainly hasn't been over time. Uh, I think that the government has a conflict of interest in this regard in terms of their campaign contributions and pandering to special interest groups for votes, you know, i.e. The, the unionized uh, forest sector. Uh, I think the solution here is probably to have a governing body from a combination of academia, industry, and stakeholders that make decisions uh, which are science-based and have the ability to apply massive fines and strip harvest volumes for poor operators. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Last year, Premier John Horgan sanctioned these timber supply area coalitions, and you can find his letter to them <clears throat> online. And the purpose was to support industry competitiveness, and they're also supposed to take into account the interests of communities. However, groups who care about anything beyond timber are not part of these coalitions. So 
they don't really serve the purpose of meeting community needs, which of course go beyond just getting revenues from cutting down trees. I think con corporate control of public and indigenous lands is, is a big part of the problem, but I've wondered before, if corporate control of lands suddenly vanished, what would happen? And what I fear is that the players in the industrial forestry culture would just fill that void somehow. I think pressure to log our last old growth and primary forests is, is, is coming from what's essentially infinite demand because, because we live in a globalized system. So the bigger system for me is, is part of the problem, not just who's making decisions, but if we had, if we could change who is making decisions, I think one good question to ask is who is underrepresented in these, in these decisions currently? Um, should we be asking elders of all kind, indigenous and non-indigenous elders? Should we be asking people with backgrounds in biology and ecology, you know, like Karen and Rachel? Um, I, I think yes. I think, I think science can tell, tell us what's been lost, what's still there, but it won't, won't tell us what we ought to do. I think there's a question of ethics and morals in that. Um, we already know that we need protection zones over what's still primary forests. And I think these areas should be outside the reach of forestry and um, in general, I think there, there should be legal covenants on areas that are still natural and intact. Those are the highest value areas. And I think that needs to be our first priority in terms of who should manage the rest, you know, areas that are adjacent to those intact areas that need to be rehabilitated and restored. I think there is lots of expertise in the forestry profession to do that. And um, we need those areas because what's, what's remaining as natural isn't actually enough for nature in the long term. And I think that if we have products, they can come from, from plantation forests or intensive, intensively managed areas that uh and those areas should be constrained to parts of bc that have already been logged in the past they shouldn't happen in primary forests so i i think there are we're talking about different types of landscapes and it won't be the same people that should be in charge of of all of them yeah i mean certainly the the science i think is pretty clear in terms of reporting on the situation that we're in uh, and suggests what needs to happen from a biodiversity and forest ecology standpoint. And then, you know, what the, the what to do, you know, either ethically or so forth, I think is, is still science driven. Um, and, you know, there, there, there needs to be a, a shift away from the singular focus of uh, the management of forests based on timber. Um, and, you know, I guess that's, that's sort of, you know, Obviously, where we're at in BC, that the forests have a singular value um, as a timber resource and have no other value. And you know, how, how do we how do we raise the those other values, whether it's biodiversity um, or resilience? Um, what are your thoughts on that? How 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 can we make this shift from our present focus to where the focus should be evolving to? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that there is a common forestry belief that 
old and primary forests require management. I think that's a really common belief. And, you know, I've, I've just experienced and noticed really bad reactions to the suggestion that are that there should be parts of the landscape that are just left alone. The, the old growth review panel, so the, the two foresters that prepared that report after speaking to people across BC, um, it contains some interesting and important information, but some of the language in the report suggests to me that the authors are actually believing this idea that all places require management. And in actual fact, old growth by definition has done just fine without management and therefore should just be left alone. That, that report um, has, contains the observation of a widespread lack of public confidence in the system of forest management, and I think it got that really right. I think that's really true. So, um, you know, whatever we do has to, has to demote the value of just money for old growth right now. Well, and that also ties into your comment and your analogy of the shifting baseline, which, which I think can be applied to any natural system, not just the fisheries. And, uh, you know, given my experience um, in the early 90s on the Queen Charlottes, where there was still some pretty decent intact stands, you know, my interpretation of the landscape would be wholly different from somebody that arrived there uh, to, to log some of the stands around Mosquito Lake in the Second World War, uh, where six and eight foot spruce were completely common and uh, you know, it, was, it, was, it was still an unspoiled wilderness. Um, so I think it's important for us, and, and part of that shifting baselines then as well, is that if as a society today, if we're looking at values other than simply timber, how do we factor that into our um, focus towards forest management? Mm-hmm, yeah. And so, I mean, is it time now um, that BC needs to declare whatever is left of these old growth forests um, as off limits to industrial development? Yes, I think if we want to maintain wildlife habitat and the ecological processes that underpin our survival, we need to protect what's left now. We need to identify where the remaining primary forests and other natural ecosystems are spatially and and protect them in in the in the whole price doust report they suggested stop logging any old and mature forest and any beck or landscape unit combination that has less than 10 percent old remaining today including existing cut block cutting permits um, and i agree with that and i think we should go even further um, and, and you know the the step of knowing where nature is still natural um, is the easiest part of that of course I mean, that's, that's a pretty radical thought, but, uh, you know, I think at this point, um, we, we need to start to do some, there needs to be some radical actions taken because we're really getting, I think we're beyond the tipping point now. Uh, and certainly seeing uh, what's happening in some of the Skeena watersheds um, where they're really getting into the headwaters. I mean, the, the Telqua headwaters now are, are very denuded. Uh, they've got a lot of problem with turbidity in that river. Uh, and we saw it uh, to a great extent on the, uh, the Zymowitz or Copper River uh, this fall as well. I mean, the, it's so flashy now and the turbidity is, you know, it, it, you get a, you know, a few millimeters of rain and, and the turbidity is in the water almost immediately. So that's, uh, that's a situation which is very unfortunate and, and needs to be addressed. That's really troubling. 
I know I've seen a range of numbers for what's left on planet Earth in terms of natural or primary forest, and it ranges from 9 to 18%. So the most original or primary forest that is forest that's never been industrialized in the past is around 18% if the numbers I've seen um, are accurate. And some of that is in BC. We have a responsibility for some of that last primary forest. Yeah, okay. No so let's, uh, let's shift gears here and, and talk about Conservation North if we could for a moment. Um, give, give us an overall um, sort of picture in terms of what the organization's vision and uh, mission is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess we're, we're, we're a lot like a kitchen table gr group. So we, we came about because a group of us locally were really concerned with the, the loss of habitat and the degradation of habitat. So our focus is the protection of habitat. And of course, this is in response partly to facts about wildlife experiencing unprecedented declines worldwide and even in Canada and even in BC. So we want to stop habitat loss in our backyard. Um, we're in general, we're about forests as a unit and not trees. So we, re we recognize that the, you know, the scale at which these systems work is, is the landscape scale. So individual trees is, is not a focus for us, it's, it's forests. We are all volunteers, so we all have jobs or are full-time parents. Our, our structure is that we're basically a, a seven-person steering committee and then we have a network of volunteers. We have a lot of support locally. Um, I think some people might imagine that perhaps a place like Prince George um, doesn't have a lot of support for environmental initiatives, but we've found that that's actually not the case. Uh, we, we, um, we do have a lot of support from, from even people in the industry actually, which is always, it's always great to hear from those people because they have a, an inside view into how it works. Well, and a lot of those people too, especially the old timers have probably seen a, a precipitous decline in, in the number of uh, wildlife, you know, a lot of hunters up there. And if, you know, when you were a 20 something year old man, 40 years ago, and, and you went out for a day or two and came back with a uh, moose without a problem. And now you spend a week in the forest and not, uh, not see one, uh, you know, that's obviously a glaring example of what's going on. Yes, we hear exactly that. And of course, a lot of the people that worked in the mills do hunt on the weekends and in their spare time. So a lot of the time, it's the, it's the same people that do both of those things. So it's really interesting to, to hear that consistent message across the board um, from people both inside the industry and outside of it, that they've noticed these long-term declines and that they're really concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so what are some of the goals of the organization then? Yeah, well, we want long-term protection of our remaining primary forests in our area of focus. So the boreal rainforest and, and the inland temperate rainforest. And there, uh, there are various avenues to, to do that, probably through legal means and probably, you know, one way that we, we need to consider going about doing this is by supporting local initiatives for an alternative economy. Um, I think we need to support First Nations communities to do um, conservation if they wish to do so. We at least need to give them the option. That needs to happen in Northern BC in a huge way. Right now, a lot of communities aren't given the option at all. Um, we also need to look into, you know, we haven't, 
there, there, there has never been a planned transition away from old growth logging, and I don't understand why that is. Um, we've known for years about the fall down effect, the fact that we were going to wipe out our old growth forests eventually, and we've never planned for when that's going to happen. And instead, what we're seeing is a doubling down of industrial forestry for more products, and they're just repackaging it as a climate solution. So this is a huge problem, is dealing with that narrative, um, but also just that we need to be doing things differently. Um, the climate envelopes are shifting. Much of the land up here has been converted. So perhaps one of the things we need to do as a region is to look into regenerative agriculture. We're a very uh, vulnerable part of BC. Most of our food comes up the highway. There's a lot of knowledge I've noticed. I, I, I happen to know a lot of um, young people, so people in their 20s, that are really in the process of learning a lot about farming and agriculture. And I think we need to be giving the reins to them actually to do innovative things with regards to producing food of all kinds. So whether that's animal agriculture or plants, um, there's just a lot of knowledge on that here, I've noticed, um, in the kind of, in the orbits that I move in. So I think we need to think about just doing different things. Um, I think, you know, we, we will be doing forestry. And like I said, it should be restricted to the parts of the landscape that have already been converted. And we should also be just be doing other things too, um, like, like farming. For sure. And that, and that certainly echoes what uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff from MIT uh, has said in terms of you know, our, our, a means for us to get away from the industrial complex of agriculture and its heavy reliance on uh, you know, particularly glyphosate and, and other toxic chemicals uh, is getting into a more community-based regenerative agriculture model, uh, which not only um, benefits human health, but it also is going to re replenish those soils and become a carbon sequestration uh, tool over the long term. Yes, and I, I should add that I, I don't know anything about agriculture. I'm just, this comment just comes from the fact that I interact with a lot of those people and I hear words like regenerative agriculture, which I haven't actually read very much about. Um, but, but yes, I think, I think we do need to be doing that. And I am, I am aware that there's a, 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 an ideal way to do agriculture and then there are ways to do it that are horrific and destructive. And obviously the ways that are um, supporting, um, you know, soil conservation and all that are, are the, the better ways to do it. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, the, the essence of that regenerative agriculture really is in the minimization of waste in a closed loop system and the, the fundamental philosophy that the soils, the health of the soils are the fundamental aspect uh, to the success of, of the agricultural operations as well as the uh, humanity's long-term survival. Okay, well, thank you for that. Yeah, um, and then do, do, do you want to just cover some of the guiding principles of um, Conservation North as well, and then we'll we'll uh, shift gears into discussing the uh, this the shift towards pellets. Um, sure. I mean, we uh, we we believe in that nature protecting nature is objectively good. So we believe in protecting nature for its own sake, and we we actually interact with a lot of people that spend a lot of time on the land and um, protecting nature is actually kind of part of their identity here because they recreate and spend a lot of time in nature. We definitely kind of uphold the voices of, of, of women and elders. Um, you know, not all of our steering committee is female, but most of us are female. 
um, we, we want to listen to the people that haven't been listened to before. Um, and so we, we really prioritize the voices of, uh, of people that are kind of ignored in this whole issue. It's, you know, the, this, the, this industry, as you may have noticed, is, is dominated by a certain type of person and, and we have a different perspective and, you know, we're open to the idea that maybe, maybe we're in this problem, maybe we're in this predicament in the first place be, because of who's being listened to and who has the power. So, uh, so we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're challenging that a bit with our group in, in the way that we can. Is, is that the, uh, the, the typical machine operator that uh, swills Molson Canadian and smokes players profusely? <laughs> you said it, not me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't want to make generalizations. I, I was more thinking about the, the people in the head offices, actually, and, uh, you know, the people making most of the decisions. We, we have a lot in common with the people that are actually running the machinery and work on the ground. So, yeah, our, our allegiances are definitely with, the, with those folks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as we, as we talked about there earlier, I mean, a lot of those people are probably living in these smaller rural communities because they, they do enjoy nature and they're, they're sort of trading off uh, having an industrial job because it pays well and, and supports their, uh, their playtime activities. And they, you know, they may or may not be completely aligned with what they're doing at work, but it's a necessary evil to live the lifestyle that they want. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, let's just touch base on, on what you started with there earlier in the discussion on, uh, on, the, on the, the sort of the, the proliferation of these pellet mills and, and uh, I guess as, as the pulp market declined, um, they needed to do something with that fiber. Mm -hmm. So I think we're at the beginning of, of an era of a, kind of a new looming threat to our last primary forests. As we learned from that last stand report, most of the really highly productive forests are gone. And so the areas that aren't as high productivity are, there's more of that left. And my sense is that those areas are being looked at to supply, um, supply the raw material for things like pellets. Um, we know that's happening actually because in the in the Prince George timber supply area document from 2017, it actually names Western hemlock stands as um, as potential sources of bioenergy feedstock, um, because and and of course Western hemlock is is part of the interior cedar hemlock zone. It's a rainforest species here, and those forests aren't aren't seen as being useful for anything else for other. Um, products that can fetch a higher price. So, so uh, yeah, our concern is that those those forests are are being looked at to supply the this industry, which I want to add is 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 not is not responsible for what's happened, but it will totally clean out our last forest if we allow it to. So. Um, yeah, we have, you know, looking through the, the publicly available information, we know that a couple of companies have been granted permission to log in primary forest. So in areas outside the rainforest, for example, um, a couple of com companies have logged areas of, of interior old forest. Um, and then we, 
we came across this information of, of the license in the rainforest through coming across flagging and when a local trapper contacted us about how he had met with a couple companies to discuss this in his trap line. And it's, it's a huge concern in part because of the messaging coming out of BC that this is actually a way to address climate change, somehow logging primary forests for pellets and then shipping it overseas. So yeah, I should add, these, this isn't necessarily to feed domestic markets is my understanding. This is actually for export markets. So um, the United Kingdom, Netherlands, Japan, Korea, those are the, those are the top four um, areas that these pellets do go and will be going in the near future. And there have been recent agreements signed, recent contracts to supply these places. And I just don't see how they are going to fill that demand without going into primary forests. So I really believe that this is what the BC government has in mind for these forests. And we are saying that's not okay, that's not acceptable. There, there's already limited social license to log old and primary forests for higher value products. And there is definitely no social license to do that for things like pellets. I think there's an element of keeping this all really secretive. And to do that, they use weaselly language like, you know, these areas are waste, they're low, they're low quality, they're inferior. You know, they have all this language to label primary forests that just can't be used for other things in order to make it seem less bad that they're targeting them uh, for, for that industry. It would be interesting to see an energy analysis comparing the full life cycle of the pellet extraction versus natural gas in terms of what the emissions would be and what the sort of total energy capture is. Uh, you know, I, th I think sometimes we're looking to do something uh, which appears greener on the outside, but if we were actually to distill down through the numbers, we'd probably realize that it's uh, uh, blatantly the other, the opposite direction. There's actually quite a bit of research that's happened on that. And as a resource, I would suggest looking into a group called the Partnership for Policy Integrity. They're based in Massachusetts and Dr. Mary Booth is an expert on, on that topic. Mm. Perfect. Yeah, because that's, I mean, there, in, in many examples, you know, including what we're trying to do with uh, the LNG and Site C, you know, yes, it sounds great to replace natural gas with coal, but when you really look at the entirety of the energy uh, consumption and the emissions profiles, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. That's also what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Michelle, if you could go back in time and chat with yourself as a young 18 or 20 year old young lady, what, uh, what advice would you have for that, that young gal? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, you asked this question to Karen and, and Rachel too, I should have anticipated that. I mean, I would say don't, don't listen to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I did too much listening to other people that, you know, thought that they had great ideas for what I should be doing. And I guess that would be, that would be what I would say is to just follow my heart as a younger person. I think I probably made a lot of decisions thinking, okay, this will be good for this or this reason. But in the end, I, I, sh I should have just done what I felt like doing. I, I came into my career a, a little later. I, I was a mature student when I started my undergrad and all that. So 
<clears throat> I, I, uh, <clears throat> and the reason for that is be, because I just didn't have the confidence really to, um, to go into that area at all, even though I, I always had the passion for it. So, so yeah, that would be my advice. Do what you feel like doing, don't listen to others. Yeah, that's good. And that was actually uh, uh, Dr. Thomas Cowan. It was the same things that don't quite question, don't believe anybody and question everything. So it's oh, uh, okay. <laughs> similar statement. Um, and then if you could change something on earth, uh, this very moment with a snap of your fingers or a magic wand, what would that, uh, what would that change be? If I could change anything right now? Yes. Oh, um, I, I would immediately protect every, every scrap of, of nature that's left for the long term right away. Um, just limit the human footprint to where it's already been limited to and protect what's left of nature. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably uh, well, well necessary. Um, and then, so if listeners want to learn more about you and your organization, uh, where should we direct them? Yep, they can come to conservationnorth.org. And we also have social media. So we have Facebook, Instagram, and, and Twitter. And they can email me at info at conservationnorth.org. Okay, great. I will put those in the show notes. And um, then people can reach out if they want to contribute or uh, learn a bit more about what you guys are up to uh, taking care of business up there. Thank you. That's great. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure, Michelle. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it was a very uh, entertaining and informative conversation. And uh, maybe as we uh, uh, some, some more topics come up over time, we'll look to circle back and uh, continue the discussion. That sounds great. Thanks a lot, Michael. All right. Fantastic. Have a great day, man. You too. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.